Well, how was your Saturday? It was, uh, it was pretty crazy around here for a while. It was exciting. That was a lot of fun. We definitely had a great time at the extravaganza that was here. And as Luke mentioned, there was a massive turnout. We were so excited as people were funneling into the building. And it was overall just a fantastic event. And I'm so just overwhelmed and proud of, of, uh, of the staff team and all the volunteers that helped out with that to make it such a, a great time for our community to come and be hosted here. If you weren't there, I hope you had a good day still, even though you weren't here with us. Uh, but what did you fit into your Easter Saturday? What did you fit in on that day? You know, we don't often think about Easter Saturday. We, we talk about Friday, we talk about Sunday, but Easter Saturday almost feels like a, like a freebie, like, like a day that is unscheduled and unplanned. Like on Good Friday, we remember that uh, Jesus died, his sacrifice for us, and his death upon the cross, and his burial. It's a sort of a solemn occasion. We come together to remember that. And then today on Sunday, we, we celebrate his resurrection, and we do through, so, through, uh, through song and through word. But what about Saturday in between Friday and Sunday, what about Saturday? What role does that play? And have you ever thought about what Saturday was like for the disciples? Now, we have the benefit of knowing how the story ends. So Saturday, we're not too concerned about because we know Sunday's coming. We know that's happening. But the disciples didn't know the end of the story at this point. And following the dramatic events surrounding Jesus' arrest and, and following his trial, his crucifixion, and then seeing him buried in a tomb... I think it's safe to assume that on Saturday, this was a time for the disciples as, as they would, would kind of be scattered but then come back together again, a time of disorientation, a time of uncertainty, a time when there was a lot of tension in their lives as their uncertainty as to what the future holds for them. There's moments in our lives where perhaps we can get a bit of a taste of this and a, a bit of an insight to what a bit of that feeling felt like. Maybe think back to a time when you had to write an exam, and so you, you, you studied and you struggled through the exam, and then you hand it in, and then there's that time of tension you live in before you get your grade. Did I pass? Did I fail? If it's a final exam, it might be serious enough, did I even pass the entire course? And you sort of live in that moment of tension for a while. What about uh, when you go to a job interview? You think it went well, or well, maybe not. No, they haven't called yet. And you're in that moment of tension, waiting to hear the end results of if you're going to get the job, if they've made their decision. Or, or guys, when we, when we got down on one knee and proposed to our fiancés, right, that tension between the question and the answer. They say that there are some questions you should never ask unless you know the answer. And I think that qualifies as one of those questions. You want to have a pretty good idea what the answer is going to be before you ask that one. But then there's also situations like, well, like on Friday, after, uh, after we were leaving church on Friday, we were, my family and I were heading off to go for lunch, and we take two vehicles, because I get here early, and Nadine and the kids come a little later. And so as she's following me to the restaurant, we come to a red light, and I hit the brakes, and I stop, and I look at my rearview mirror, and this moment of tension started to build as I see her sliding closer and closer to my truck as her car is coming, sliding and sliding. And then I'm waiting, is she going to hit me or is she not going to hit me? We'll let the tension hold for a minute. Because on Easter Saturday, for the disciples, this is a time when they lived in the tension of the moment. And that feeling is not broken until there's some form of reorientation, some form of closure to the story, some sense of clarity re again descends upon their lives. Like when you learn you passed the test and you passed the class, when you learn you got the job, when your wife says yes to the proposal, when Nadine did hit my truck with her car at that red light. <laughs> but, 
Minimal damage. It's okay. <laughs> Easter Sunday becomes kind of the payoff. Easter Sunday is when that tension is broken, when that final outcome becomes known. On Good Friday, we focus upon the first three verses of, of a very well-known passage written by the Apostle Paul that he included in his letter to the, Philippi, to the Philipp, uh, Philippians in Philippians uh, chapter 2. And in those first three verses, we read about how Jesus, being the very nature of God, humbled himself and took the very nature of a servant. And being found in human likeness, he dwelt among us. And then made the ultimate sacrifice by dying upon a cross where he paid the price for your sins and for mine upon that cross. Now at this point in the story, we reach the low point, figuratively and literally, as he descends into a grave. And he's placed in a tomb. Cue the tension. Cue the uncertainty of Saturday. But the hymn continues on Sunday. The hymn continues on Sunday as God steps to center stage. And he breaks the tension in the story and responds to Jesus' faithful sacrifice. Where it says, therefore, God exalted him. God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Because of Jesus' humble, faithful, sacrificial service, God responds in two ways. First, he exalts him to the highest place. He exalts Jesus to the highest place where it is recognized that he has sovereignty over all creation. Now, this is not a higher level than Jesus previously held. Remember, he was, he's the pre-existent God. What Paul's communicating here is that in light of Jesus dwelling among us, and making that sacrifice in our presence so we can experience that personally. The distinction between who he is and who we are is so much more pronounced. It would be like hearing that the world's tallest man uh, ever recorded is 8 feet 11 inches tall. That's as high as some of the ceilings in your house. This guy would have to duck just to walk through your living room. But to hear that a guy is 8 feet 11 inches tall, but then to actually stand beside him are two very different things. You can know in your mind that he is nine feet tall, but then to stand beside him, even myself being over six feet tall, to look up another three feet is a different experience. To know that a guy by the name of Andre de Grasse is the fastest man in Canada is one thing. But then to actually line up in the starting blocks beside him to hear that gun go off and see just how badly he beats you in that race is another whole experience altogether. You see, the distinction between who Jesus is and who we are comes so much more pronounced in the fact that he dwelt among us and made a sacrifice among us and then it was exalted to the highest place. But given the greatness of who Jesus is, he's also worthy of a name that is above all names. Now, Paul doesn't tell us here exactly what that name is. It's been speculated over the years, over the centuries, of what that name may be. Some people think the name is, is Son of God. Some people have, have suggested maybe it's simply his earthly name, Jesus. That name is the name that is above every name. The, the leading thought on this is that the name Lord is what Paul's referring to here. But, but that's sort of secondary. You can see what Paul's trying to point out, what Paul's trying to emphasize is that names hold meaning. And we know this to be true in our own lives, that names hold meaning. Every person here has a name. And that name is important and it is special to you. It's part of your identity. It's part of your history. It, it connects you to a family. 
Names are important. But names also sometimes have, have roles associated with them. For example, husband and wife are names or roles associated with people. And that communicates to the world of an exclusive bond that exists. Because nobody else in the entire world can say that Nadine is their wife. Only I can say that. Because that name holds meaning and communicates truth. But names also declare position. To say somebody is a, is a CEO is to say that they are in a place to have a right to make decisions. They're in a place to have authority over other people. You see, Paul's trying to communicate that names have meaning. And the main message he's saying here by saying that Jesus has a name that is above every name is that of all the names, of all the roles, of all the positions you can name in all the realms of heaven and earth, there is no name higher than the name of Jesus Christ. It is the name above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The scene described here in Ephesians 2 verses 10 and 11 is reminiscent of a throne room where Jesus is exalted, this name above every name, and God places him in the highest realms. And then he ends the hymn with these two verses, reminiscent of a throne room with all creation assembled around Jesus. As Jesus sits upon that throne, there is no rival. There is no game of thrones. Everybody agrees who is worthy to sit on that throne. Only one question remains. The only question that remains is whether or not his subjects will willingly bend the knee and declare him Lord. Those who have accepted his mercy, those who have accepted his forgiveness will voluntarily kneel. They will voluntarily worship him because they have accepted and declared that yes, Jesus is Lord. But then there are those who oppose. There are those who resist this truth. And they are instantly struck with the reality that they are no longer able to deny who is worthy. And they are put to shame by that truth. But see, this is never intended, however, to be a hostile takeover. In this verse, in the example of Jesus and the sacrifice he made, it was never intended to be, to be a declaration that is made by coercion. But rather, God's desire is for all of us, for every person, to personally hear and experience the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ and then come to a point of knowing that there is no other king but Jesus. There is nobody else worthy but Jesus. You may not have thought of this before, but all of us have kings in our lives. Now that's not maybe the language you would use to describe that, but all of us have kings in our lives. All of us have somebody or something to which we ascribe authority in our lives, to which we grant power, to which we grant direction that, that determines the direction our lives go, that influences and determines the choices we make, that, that is the foundation behind the beliefs that we hold. And we need to be careful what we extend authority to. Because sometimes we make decisions about beliefs and directions and choices and values without really considering what is the underlying authority behind that. What am I aligning myself if I state that belief? Because there's authority behind each decision and belief and direction. Now this shows up in different ways in our lives. 
Sometimes people put place, uh, place their trust in, in other people. And this can be appropriate in some situations, such as when a child places trust and authority in a parent. That's a natural order of things. Or when you go to work and, and you place a degree of authority upon a boss that's, that's required probably by your job. It's hard to keep a job if you don't hold that sort of a belief that your boss has a degree of authority over you. But it can also show up in negative ways. For example, when a controlling spouse exercises undue authority over a person. We can also have authorities in our lives that are defined by goals or dreams. Like athletes who have their eye on the prize. The, we're coming up to the Stanley Cup playoffs pretty soon. And everybody who makes the playoffs has their eye on that Stanley Cup. And it is a driving, motivating factor that will influence everything from the socks they wear to whether or not they shave for the next few months. It has an authority in their lives. Sometimes possessions can hold that sort of a grip upon us. Before I was a pastor and I was in management, managing salesmen, I had one salesman who was so controlled by making money, he chose a business trip over being present at the birth of his daughter to go make money. But most common for a lot of people, the most common authority, the most common king in their lives is ourselves. We tend to put ourselves in that position of authority. And now there, there's tension in this thought because we know by the nature of kingship there can only be one king. And so if we are to accept Jesus' offer to be the king of our lives, if we acknowledge that he is the only one worthy to sit upon the throne, that means that we can no longer sit in it. We can no longer be the king or the queen of our lives. Now you still retain the power of choice. You see, the relationship God wants to establish with everybody that was made possible through the sacrifice and exaltation of Jesus Christ, the nature of that relationship, the foundation of it is of love. It was an act of incredible love that we see on Good Friday flowing through Easter. And love demands free choice because love cannot be commanded. You cannot coerce love. You cannot feign love. True love is a choice. And so we always maintain the degree of choice. We'll always choose what